to turn to Colossians. We're, uh, we won't necessarily begin our study of Colossians today, but we'll be jumping back and forth there. But we are approaching a study of Colossians. And uh, the, the, the purpose of Colossians is that... Uh, I've got my phone up here for my clock, so I don't keep you all too long. The purpose of Colossians is that Christ would be preeminent. That the believers there in Colossae would understand that the that Christ is more than sufficient, totally sufficient for all of their spiritual needs. And there were a group of false teachers who were leading the believers there in Colossae to think that uh, that they needed that 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 they could add, that they could take themselves to another spiritual level. That that Christ wasn't in Himself enough. That that we needed to abstain from certain food and drink. And and there were there were dealings with angels and dealings with visions and all these things that could that could elevate somebody to a, to a new spiritual level. And, and what they were saying was they were undermining the sufficiency of Christ. We, we, we have everything we need in Christ. He is preeminent. He is totally sufficient, totally supreme. And so Paul goes on the defense here to help them to understand in Colossians First, what they have in Christ so that they would understand that there was nothing that these other things could offer them that they did not already have in Christ. Paul kind of assumes the adage of the best defense is a good offense. Let me explain to you what you have in Christ and, and you'll be no, there'll be no attraction, no need for these other things. Why? Because you'll see that what you have in Christ is more than enough. Understanding what you have in Christ, and that's what... Paul talks about it in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face and that their hearts be encouraged. Having been knit together in love and attaining all the wealth that comes from the fullness, assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. All the fullness is in Christ Himself. We need to understand that. He says, And in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, listen, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That, that's really my heart in this study, that we would have a firm, stable, immovable, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that you'd be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because the reality and the sufficiency of Christ. And you and I, again, we're just as prone to deception and to falling into traps that they were in that day. Is Christ enough? Is it Christ plus something? Is it Christ plus abstaining from something? Or is Christ enough? Paul, Paul's going to deal with that and... and I. I you know, he's going to step on some toes in verse 16 of chapter 2. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Listen, things that are a mere shadow of what's to come. You know, he says, you don't gain your standing with God by, by not drinking something or drinking something or by not eating something or not eating something. You gain your standing before God through Christ. Christ. Your relationship with Christ. And, and the, the, the fallout of that is how do we relate to that? How do we relate to Christ and the work that he's done? 
do we see it as sufficient? Do we now need, did he just get us started and we need to come along and kind of help him out? And, and next week we'll look at, at life under God and life over God. Did, did God kind of just spin the world into motion, set all these laws in place and we just adhere to the laws? You know, gravity and these principles. Do we, do we kind of just, hey, I'll take your salvation, but you know, daily living, you really got nothing to offer me because I've got all these principles over here to live by. Maybe that's some of us. What about life under God? Does God need to, do we constantly need just, uh, oh, I hope I'm pleasing him enough, I hope I'm pleasing enough, I hope I'm doing enough. Is that the way the relationship he wants? Or is Christ enough? You know, last week we looked at the position of, of life from God. And that was a posture where we said that you're more concerned about the blessings than you are with the giver of the blessings. And, and we would see that clearly today in, in what we would call the prosperity gospel, but it shows up in a lot of different forms in our own lives. Why do you do what you do? Is it to gain Christ, as we saw in Philippians 3, or is it to gain the blessings of Christ? Is it the stuff, or is it the person? In, in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says this, listen to this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, listen to this, so that he might bring us to God, to God. Is that 1 Peter 3.18? Okay, yeah, that he would bring us to God. God is the reward, that's what we said last week, God is the reward, not the stuff. And we said the challenge is, is we don't get this right when we, when we assume these false postures, it's not only devastating for our spiritual growth, it's devastating for the world around us, the non-believers who are looking to us and listening to our gospel. What gospel are we selling them? Is it come to, is it come to Christ and he's get, you'll never get cancer? That's a lie. This room right here proves that's a lie. Is it come to Christ and your, your, your electronics in your house won't break down? That's a lie too. Is it, is it come to Christ and your, your kids will grow up to love? No, that's not always true. The, the reward, again, the, the blessing is God. The reward of salvation is God. It's not the blessing. He is the blessing. And you see, we have to be real careful what gospel we communicate to the world around us. Because, because here's the deal. If it's come to Jesus and you'll get a BMW, you know what the world will say? I'll take your BMW, you can keep your Jesus. And what they really are loving is the BMW. What they're really loving is the blessings. It's not the God behind the blessings. See, God is the reward. The gospel is Christ dying, three days later being resurrected, why? To reconcile you and I to God, not to reconcile us to blessings, material blessings. He died to reconcile us to God because our sin had separated us from a holy God. The need of salvation is to be reconciled to a holy God because if we're not reconciled to a holy God, all of his wrath and fury that fell on Christ towards sin is going to fall on you and me. But instead, in his great love, God sacrificed. He crucified his son, poured all that wrath out on his son so that whosoever would call upon Jesus Christ could be saved. Why? Because the punishment for your sin and for my sin has already been paid by Christ. Therefore, as Hebrews said, we can boldly enter God's throne room into his presence. Why? Because there's no sin in between us. It's forgiven. 
We're sons. We're adopted. And, and the, the point is, even in 1 Corinthians 5, it says we, at the end of our lives, even our motives, listen to me, even our motives are going to be judged. It's not just your actions. It's our motives. Why did you do what you did? Why? It says it's going to be laid bare, laid open. And, and that's really at the heart of what we're looking for. It's the why. See, we get real consumed with the what. See, I see your what. I see all the stuff some of you do, but you know what I don't know? The why behind it. And God knows the why behind it, and the why behind it could pollute the what, if that makes sense. I feel like Abbott and Costello up here. We're really good at the what. We're really good at doing things. The question is, what's the why behind the what? Why are you doing what you're doing? 1 Corinthians 13 says if you can do all these great things, but if you're not motivated by love, you know what you are? You're a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. Useless. It's the why. Are you motivated by simply a love for him who crucified his son for you? That your sins could be forgiven? Is that the why? And that's what I want to get to today. We looked at life from God last week again. And today it's life for God. Life for God. And I want to caution on the front side because as soon as you see that up there, I promise you a lot of your minds are going crazy. I am to live for God. I am to do this. This is probably one of the this is probably where most of us are going to feel the most conviction in, in these four. This is probably going to be the one right here. And, and I'm, I'm just begging you to hang in there with me as I build this. Don't, don't take a detour and tune me out and miss what I'm saying. This is probably the most widely accepted false posture, it, not only personally, but it's probably the most widely encouraged false posture by churches. Knowingly or unknowingly. And this posture looks awesome from the outside. Real spiritual from the outside. And on the inside, empty tomb. Real good from the outside. And again, the issue is control. We want to control God. We want, we in our flesh... And we'll see it as we jump into Colossians. We want, to put, we want to do things that puts God in a position where He has to do what we want Him to do and He has to behave the way that we expect Him to behave. If I do all this, again, this is real personal this week. If I do all this, God, I did all this. Why didn't Greg say yes? It ain't got nothing to do with God's love for me, the fact that Greg didn't say yes. It has nothing to do with my position or my posture in front of Him either. So I want to break this down and help us to understand, and so that, again, so that we can diagnose, we can diagnose in our own lives maybe where these show up. And, 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 and a lot of these, these four, like we talked, they're going to show up in our lives at different times, and we've got to be able to recognize them and repent of them and go back to the preeminence of Christ. And again, what Paul is saying is this, do not settle for Christ being prominent in your life Pursue Christ being preeminent in your life. 
These, these would, you would not be so bold as to totally ignore or deny or shun God altogether. It's just he's not preeminent. He may be prominent, but he's not preeminent. And just like the video that Chris put together that we saw last week in a piece this week, we, we begin to introduce rivals into our lives. God begins to have rivals. And you know what we're telling the world? That Christ isn't all that the Bible says he is. That he's not the sole satisfactor, satisfactory and supplier of everything I need. So I want to dig in here in Life for God with some, 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 di- some points to help us di- diagnose this. Because ultimately, listen to me, ultimately, as we saw last week, these false postures fail to deliver on what they promise. They promise you something, and they don't deliver. They do not deliver. Only Christ delivers. So you see on your handout, the person who has assumed the posture of life for God is that person who believes that what matters most is not God's love for you, but how much you can accomplish for Him. And in many ways, this is a response to the life from God posture. Assume for a moment the picture we said last week of God, the life from God posture kind of assumes that God is His vending machine. We go up, we punch the buttons, and we just get whatever we want from God. He's a vending machine. Well, guess what? If you live off a vending machine too long, bad things happen. You're not going to be a very healthy person. I'm just going to leave it at that. So this posture really is a response. So, and we're very good at this as Christians. We don't want to... Life from God may be over here on the far left. So you know what we do? And in, in, to avoid that, we run way over here to the far right. And we assume a life for, for God posture. So we don't want to be lazy and just sit back and take all the blessings. You know what we do? We're going to get our identity and our worth in doing things. We're going to make it about doing things. And we're going to busy you to death. And, 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 and again... It is, it's a fight against becoming lazy. It's a fight against becoming cons- a consumer. And so we do, we become a doer. And, and lots of ministries, lots of giving, lots of serving in, in churches and individuals alike. We think, that, that we think that as pastors that we can make a servant out of you. If we'll just, we'll just busy you to death. And that we will do for you what, we, what you won't do for yourself. And so you, as a church, you program lots of programs and lots of ministries so that we can do for you what you really don't want to do for yourself. And really what you ought to be doing for yourself. And again, just like with the life from God posture, nothing wrong with asking for God to bless and to give blessings. The problem was the motivation behind the requests. And listen to me. There's nothing wrong with serving and giving and activity. The Bible makes that very clear. If you hear me say that, you're you're mishearing me. It's the why behind what you're doing that's the problem. Why are you doing what you're doing? And if you were to cut down below the surface of all the activity, you would find that what motivates the activity in a life for God posture is wrong as well. And the problem you see on your handout of a life for God posture is that some activity begins to define the person, becomes their identity, rather than the activity flowing from their identity of being simply a child of God. They begin to define themselves by that activity. Again, at the heart of the activity is not the glory for God or response 
to all that God has done, but it's a goal of accomplishing something or being identified by the activity. And you ignore the relationship that is to fuel the activity. It would be like a husband who takes his family on nice vacations and takes his dinner out to, ni- out, uh, all, you know, out to nice meals and big house and cars and all that, but, but deep down he's not doing it for love, he's doing it because he cares what other people think about him. And it's easier to do all that than it is to simply love your wife sacrificially every single day. You see it? See, we would look on the outside and say, man, that guy really loves his family. Inside, that guy don't love his family. He loves himself. And his identity is not as such and such wife. His identity becomes what he provides and what he does. Again, we're talking about the heart. Go, go to Luke 15. We looked at it last week with regards to the prodigal, and we looked at the son who, who asked for all the blessings and left. Well, guess what? That's a life from God. The son who stayed, guess who he shows us? He shows us a life for God posture. And, and what we can see is, is starting in verse 25 of chapter 15 of Luke. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Listen to this, Look, For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who came, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth of prostitutes, you killed and fattened the calf for him. And he said to him, son, listen, and here's the point. Listen, what, what was the son focused on? Himself. The son was focused on himself. And listen to what the dad says. He did all that stuff for himself. Listen to what the dad says. He said to him, the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Notice where the older son, you know what what mattered to the father? Not all the son's accomplishments. You know what mattered to the father? The fact that the son had been with him. The relationship. It's the relationship. The son got his identity in what he did. The father, the father cared about who he was. He cared about the relationship. And look, both sons were different, but they were similar in this. Neither one of them were particularly interested in the relationship with the father. Both of them did different things, but both of them were focused on who? Themselves. Both of them did different things. Both of them missed the relationship with the father. It was a relationship. One son took and the other worked. Vending machine, and then you got the, I'll just work to accomplish your love. And again, it's important to know, who did Jesus tell this story to? The Pharisees. 
Who were the Pharisees? The first Pharisees were very devoted religious men who drew their significance from their service and their activity from God. He's not saying it's wrong. He's simply saying it's not your identity. And he's saying, why do you do it? The Pharisees did it, why? Self-righteousness. They didn't do it as a response to God's glory. They didn't do it to give glory to God. They did it so that men would see them and seeing how great you are instead of how great thou are. It was self-righteousness. It was self-centered righteousness. And listen, what I'm saying is this. What God cares about more than anything is the relationship. And listen, everything, everything ought to flow from that, the relationship. And you can see that in the Father's response. You've been with me. He didn't say you've done all these things for me. You know what the Father cared about? All these times you've been with me. What brought the Father joy was not the activity. It was their presence. It was their intimacy. And here's what we learn. You see it on your handout. God's gifts are a blessing and His work is important, but neither can or should replace God as our focus. Our, the primary responsibility is the relationship. We, we cannot be like either and find our identity in our, in our accomplishments. And listen to me. Again, it even, even us as churches, who do we celebrate? We, sat, we celebrate those who have sacrificed or accomplished the most, who had the most activity. Activity's not bad, but no, no, intimacy with the Father. It's intimacy with the Father that, that, that ought to be the priority. And what happens over time is, is this life for God posture. You see it there. We begin to view ourselves based on what we accomplish on God's behalf rather than who we are and letting that fuel our doing. And, and I'm, I'm in danger, listen, that is a tremendous occupational hazard for a pastor. Do I get my identity in being a pastor? Or am I a follower who happens to be a pastor? Do I get my identity, am I, listen, one of the great occupational hazards, do I come to the Word to be fed spiritually individually, or do I come to the Word thinking about what I'm going to tell you? Totally different, totally different approaches. And I can spend all my time studying, not for my own intimacy with God, but that I, so that I can exegetically present a passage the best. No, I, I got to come to God in His Word to be fed as a son, to be, in, to be intimacy with the Father first, and then let everything flow out of that. Not, not allowing my work to define me. And listen, we ought to be servants. Don't, don't leave and say, well, Chris told me not to do anything. That's not what I said. Because listen to me, the man or the one, listen to me. Can a husband do a lot of things for his wife and kids and not really love them? Can a husband really, really love his wife and kids and not do a lot of great things for his wife and kids? No, no, no. If he really loves them, he can't help but serve them. That's my point. I can do a lot of great things and not have love. That's what 1 Corinthians Paul is saying. But I can't not do those things if I really love my wife and my kids. You see the difference. 
And you and I, on the outside, it will look the same. But it's a false posture to think, you know what, we care about what you think about me more than what God knows about me. And again, we begin to, we begin to make, all I'm saying is we begin to make the wrong things essential. And in the life for God posture, we begin to act in our own strength apart from our relationship to Christ. I can do a lot of great things in my own strength. I got a lot of verses memorized. I, I got a decent, I mean, I, 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 I kind of know the Word of God. I can look real good on the outside. But is my identity found in my accomplishments or is my identity found in a love relationship with the Father as His Son? And I, listen, I, love to, I long to see people engaged in discipleship and what we've been called to do as believers. And I'm not saying otherwise. What I'm saying is this. Your mission can't define who you are. You're a child of God who is called to be a disciple maker. Don't miss the child of God part and go out and try to make disciples on your own, in your own strength. First and foremost, you're a child of God. Let that define who you are, and then let the activity flow out of that. So many of us are trying to do the activity when we need to be focused on the relationship. But you see, B on your handout, not only, not only do we find our identity in our accomplishment, the person who has assumed the posture of, li of, of life for God is that person who is allowed doing for Christ to take precedence and separate it from their being in Christ. You've wrongly separated the being and the doing. And that's what we saw last week. What was Paul's goal? Paul's goal was to gain Christ, to know Christ. He said, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, I consider it dung, the loss of all things. Why? Because I want to know Christ. And Paul's doing flowed out of his being. The focus was on the, the gaining Christ. That was the focus behind what he did. And my point is, again, you and I can do all sorts of things and we can miss the relationship that is offered to us with God. Or we can be motivated to do these things with, and wrongly. Not the right motivation. Namely, our own praise or what you think of me or, or what you expect of me. Wrong praise, wrong focus. And, and listen, the number one, one of the number one enemies, it's the, it's the praise of man, the fear of man. L listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Verse 1. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Listen to this. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. Today it would say, do not post it on Facebook as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You know what he's saying? You wanted man's praise, you got man's praise, that's all you're getting. He says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your, you know, don't, do not, I truly say to you, they have the reward full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be done in secret, 
and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you don't need to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, again, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go to the inner room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He goes on to say, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many. Do you see the point? We do what we do out of a love relationship and an overflowing of a love relationship with God, not so men see us and praise us. And, and all of us are, all of us, I guarantee everyone in this room has thought before, if I don't go to that thing, what are they going to think about me? What is God going to think about you? And the question is, why don't you want to go to that thing? And the other question I would say is, why do you who are going to that thing, why are you going to that thing? Love, relationship. Again, I, I've said it before, we're really good. We're really good at selfish mercy. What I mean by that is this, I'm really good at doing stuff for people that can return the favor. What we're not good at is sacrificial mercy. That's why James 1, 26 and 7, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, visiting widows and orphans in distress. Why? Because they got no way to repay you. God, God showed you and I sacrificial mercy. Sacrificial mercy. We got no way to repay Him. You know what He says in response? Just live for me. Even, even less than that. You know what he says in response? Love me. Well, how many, how many times I got to go to church? Love me. Well, how, many, how much do I got to give? Love me. It'd be like you going to your wife. Okay, Karen, how many times I got to take you out this year? Just tell me so I don't go. You know, you know what you're saying? You know what you're saying when you say that? I don't want to do too much. I don't want to do too much. Okay, Karen, what, what, do, I got, uh, what do I got to give you for Christmas? Just give me a list. So I can go get the list and get it over with. Versus, if I was really a good husband, I'd be watching and I know my wife and I know these things and I'd go shop for her. Now, I'm horrific at that, so don't hear me. Hear me. I need a list. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Jeremiah 10, 14. All men are stupid, void of knowledge. That's what it says. It's what it says. But the point is, it's the why. Hear me, it's the why. It's the Why? What we do ought to overflow from who we are and who God has declared us to be. It ought to be, as, Paul, as he said, this, David, Daniel led us in singing, and Paul says in Ephesians 3, you know what he says the most, what he wants more than the Ephesians for anything? That they would understand the height and breadth and width and, and, and breadth, the height, depth, width, breadth of God's love for them. If you really, really understood how much God loves you, it would change everything. It would change the motivation behind everything. You wouldn't perform for Him. You'd die for Him, but it wouldn't be out of a heart of performance. You'd give yourself for Him, as it says in Romans 12, but it'd be out of sheer love. It wouldn't be to pay Him back. It wouldn't be to earn you wouldn't care, I wouldn't care what men thought about me. Why? Because I'd be so secure in what God said of me. 
And at the center of what we do cannot be a mission but a relationship. The mission flows out of the relationship. We are to go and make disciples. Why? Because of God's love for us and His choosing us and His calling us and, and, His, and His dying for our sins. We want other people to hear about that truth that they can have the same joy and, and, and salvation that we've had. Don't get the two mixed up. The mission flows from the relationship. It'd be like a guy saying, hey, teach me how to buy good gifts for my wife. No, no, I'm going to teach you how to love your wife. And I'm going to let the gift giving flow out of the love. Because you can buy good gifts and not care about your wife. And we, you and I can do a lot of great things masking, masking the fact that our relationship with the Lord is about that shallow. Masking the fact that we, ain't come, we haven't sat under His Word all week. Masking we haven't prayed all week. Masking we haven't memorized the Word in forever. Masking that we have not enjoyed just sitting at His feet, enjoying the fellowship. Masking all of that, but we do, we will get on a mission trip, do this, do this. I'm, I'm simply saying we've reversed the order. Hear me. It'd be kind of like me coming home and have been a, a jerk all week, and I tell Karen, let's just go out to dinner, and I think that's going to make it up. I'm just going to make it up by taking her out to a nice dinner. You know what she'd say? Chris, stop being a jerk. I'll do without the dinner. I'd rather have you. And the activity can't mask the relationship that's not there. Even in Colossians, Paul, Paul will deal with this in Colossians 3, and eventually, one to, at one time, we'll get to actually Colossians as a whole, but I want you to see the, the context here. Because we can come to these books and we can separate ourselves and not really... No, no, this is us. Colossians 3.12, So that those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... What's he pointing to? Remember who you are. The relationship you've been chosen... Put on, out of that having been chosen, out of being holy and beloved, put on heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing one another, reproving, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against one another. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you should. Again, do you see the heart of it? It's your relationship with God first. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. Everything is pointing back to the relationship first. Everything is flowing out of a relationship. And, and the danger facing you and I is to become preoccupied with our doing and our own program and our own means of spiritual fullness, and we end up separating ourselves from the real source of fullness, namely a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything is to flow out of the relationship. And when our activity becomes a way of gaining or meriting God's approval or earning a standing before Him, listen to me, that undermines the sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ. When we identify ourselves by what we do instead of who we are, you're undermining the sufficiency of Christ. And the activity, again, becomes an enemy. 
Again, my wife, she does not care if every now and then I go play golf. But if I go play golf every day and I'm never home for dinner, you know what golf becomes? It becomes an enemy. You know why? Because it's a rival. My love, for, my love for golf has begun, in her mind at least, to rival my love for her. And you know what? She's not standing for that. And be, you see it on, again, in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. 1 Peter 1, three or 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You know what he goes on to say? Because of that, see to it, make every effort, applying all diligence, add to your faith moral excellence, and to your moral excellence knowledge, and to your knowledge power. He goes this whole laundry list. But everything was rooted in first who they were in Christ, a relationship. And the being in Christ is what we rest in, not our activity. We don't rest in our activity. And our activity is to be an overflow of who we are in Christ. Again, one of my favorite passages in all the world. One of my favorite passages. 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Listen to what he says. He starts it in verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he calls them to excel in. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your own hands just as we commanded you. Why? So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Your testimony. Who you resting in? It's rest. I mean, that, that verse is so counterproductive. So counterproductive. I mean, ca- counterintuitive, not counterproductive. Counterintuitive to our culture. Rest. The relationship, your testimony, who you're communicating to the world around you, what gospel are you communicating? Listen, we don't celebrate a guy who gets up or a gal who gets up every day, goes to work or stays home with their kids or she goes to work, minds his business, provides for his family, leaves a quiet life, glorifies God through his work, shares the gospel at work, just gets up every day, does their role and goes home. We celebrate the guy that does the opposite. Why? Because we have a tendency to to gravitate towards a life for God mentality. Why do we oftentimes ask people what their titles are? I'm immensely guilty of this because we we assign value to a title. What do you do? I mean, I ask Karen and her friends all that. What does she do? I don't know. Why don't you know that? Well, Karen don't care. She don't know what any of her friends do. I can tell you what all my friends do. Why? Because, again, we, we gravitate, if we're not careful, we attribute value to activity. And we forget, listen, God called every single one of us to be a missionary and to glorify Him where you are and the simple activities of where you are every day. You a stay-at-home mom, do it to the glory of God. You a working mom, do it to the glory of God. You a working dad, do it to the glory of God. You a stay-at-home dad, do it to the glory of God. You an accountant, do it to the glory of God. You a teacher, do it to the glory of God. You a student, do it to the glory of God. Out of the relationship. You don't have to be a full-time pastor or missionary for God to do great things. For God to get great glory in your life. 
You need to give him glory and seek to glorify him. We'll get to that in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, he says. But again, it flows out of a relationship. And, and again, you see it on your hand, everything in our lives is to be sourced in God's love for us already, not in order to merit or earn God's love for us. And as we said in Ephesians 3, where Paul says, my prayer for you is you'd understand God's love. Well, I think what Paul was saying there, and you see it on your handout, is what we as believers need more than anything is not more activity, but a greater understanding of the gospel and how much God loves us, because that will fuel our activity. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, when you've looked and plumbed the depths of God's mercy, you know what he says? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the ring of your mind, so they may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Everything flowed. Eleven chapters. You know what Paul talked about? The gospel. For 11 chapters, Paul talks about what God has done for you in the gospel. He spends five on activity. And the very first statement that transitions that book is, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, looking at God's mercy, understanding God's mercy, go offer your body. You know what we want to do? We just want to go offer our body. We just want to go to work. And we see it, guess what? When you get something and when you get something to put together at home, what do you do? You read the instruction, you just start putting it together. You start putting it together. I got this. I'm gonna show my wife how awesome I am. I got this. And then you stand there with like four parts, like, this sounds probably good. Read. Study. Plumb the gospel. Again, I'm not I'm not dismissing activity. I'm not dismissing the fact that we've been given a mission. Clearly, Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. But you know where that flowed from? Flowed out of a relationship. Flowed out of having been filled with the Spirit. Flowed out of God working through them. And we cannot put activity for God ahead of God, ahead of the relationship. And again, doing, you see it on your handout, doing cannot take precedence over being. We, we, we dig into this word, we spend time at Jesus' feet, and then we go out before a lost world because then we're prepared. Because it's God doing it through us. It's God through us. And that's all I'm saying. Communion, listen to me, communion comes first. Activity is an overflow of the, of the communion, of the intimacy. And, and again, even in here, we come in here and, and, and we, have you been with God all week? Have you communed with God all week? Have you, have you communed through the word? Have you communed with prayer? Have you spent time with him? Have you, are, are you coming and then you come in here and you expect, it would be like me, you know, I haven't seen my family all week or I've been, and then you just come and you think it's going to be okay? You think God's just going to forget that you've ignored him all week and say, oh man, Chris went to church today. Everything's all right. 
He went to church today. Even our coming here is to be an overflow overflow of having communed with him all week. Like We can't wait to get with other believers to share what the overflow of what God's been doing us all week. I'll be honest, some of my some of the the many, many of what I think are the best sermons, the most exciting sermons I've preached, you know where they've come from? My communion with God. Not me sitting down and just coming up with a sermon. It's me spending time with God, and in that time with God, He overwhelms me with exactly what I need to say. Again, me doing it versus God doing it in me. An overflow of my fellowship with Him or me sitting down and just exegeting Colossians. Totally different. But on the surface, you hear me, they look exactly the same. And there couldn't be more different. Couldn't be. That's why in Matthew 7, again, he says, you know, they say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all this thing? You know what Jesus says? He says, depart from me, you evildoers. Why? Because I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You know what he says? There's no relationship. There was no relationship. And I don't want us to miss the relationship. The joy of Christianity is having a relationship with God. That's the, that's the prize. C, the person who has assumed the posture of life for God is that person who has begun to attach their worth to what they do rather than who they are in Christ. I think every single one of us in here, again, I'll be the first to tell you, fear of insignificance, fear of failure, fear of this thing falling apart and, and me looking like a fool. And, and, you know, you see it in pastors, because when you go and meet with other pastors, you know what the first question they ask me? How many? What is it? How many, how many are you running these days, Chris? Where are they attaching my worth? How many of you guys are in the seats? And it's very easy for me to attach my worth to that as well. Church isn't growing. I must be an idiot. Church isn't growing. You know what? I must, you just need a better pastor. You know what? If you need, listen, we got a, we got a Bible full of things where, of stories of men and women who were very faithful and it didn't work out very well. I, I know of some great pastors who were run out of their churches, not because they were faithful pastors, because the sheep stunk. Sheep stink. The people didn't want, they wanted their ears to be tickled. They wanted to be fed mush and not meaty, not the meat of the word. And so you know what they did? They ran them off. And I know people who leave churches. Why? Not because they, they'll blame the preacher, but you know what? They just want their ears tickled. They're not willing to be convicted. They're not willing to be confronted. You know what they go? They leave. So you know what? I look like a failure when the reality is I'm being faithful. Now, I'm not saying that I don't. I, I, you certainly don't have the best pastor in the world. I'll be the first to tell you that i got a lot of room to grow. But my worth can't be attached 
to what I do. My worth is who does Christ declare me to be. God declares me to be His Son because I have a relationship through Christ. And again, my intimacy with God is, is, is f- fueled by time with Him, and then the activity for Him becomes an overflow in a way for me to simply gain more intimacy with Him. Suffering begins to fall in the right context of Paul, like he says in Philippians 3. Even in suffering, we gain intimacy in Christ. Why? Because the goal is to gain Christ. And that's where these false postures fall apart. They don't have a context for suffering. They don't have a context for things not going right. They don't offer what they promise. They can't. But Christ can. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.21, To live is Christ and to what? To die is gain. For if I go on living, it'll be fruitful ministry. And in that, I'll gain Christ. He says, but you know what? If I die, I gain Christ. His worth was in Christ, not his doing. Paul is sitting in a jail when he writes Philippians. Not a whole lot of activity. But there was a lot of activity because of what, who he was and the gospel and was still going forth. That's why Paul says in one twelve, Brothers, I don't want you to be unaware of my circumstances. Because we would think, just like the Philippians, man, Paul, you're in jail. That can't be good. God certainly can't be working in your life. No, no, no. Quite the contrary. Even in one eighteen, there's people who are mocking him and making fun of him and lying about him. You know what Paul says? He says, who cares? Literally, what then? That would be our way of saying, who cares? Only that Christ is glorified. Intimacy. And again, behind the life for God posture is an effort to prove that we're valuable through our doing. A religious drive to prove. And listen, God never meant for our doing to be fueled by a fear of not doing enough. He never meant for our doing to be fueled by a fear of not doing enough. Our activity is to be driven by God's unconditional and unceasing love for us. Not, not a fear for not doing enough. The reality is I can never do enough to pay God back. And, and we cannot, again, our worth cannot be determined by what we're doing. And, and I would illustrate it as we close. As, uh, I thought about this week as a, a fire. Like if I ask you to describe a fire, most people, what they will describe are the flames. But you know what the real essence of a fire is? You know where the real essence and source of a fire is? It's in the coals. See, I can go out back and I could take a Christmas tree and I can light it. I can light it on fire. You know what it's going to do? 30-foot flames. And if you want to see videos, the Griffiths have videos to prove it. 30-foot flames will fly up in the air. And we can take a picture of that, and it can look real good. But guess what? In about four minutes, you know what? It's gone. It's gone. Or over here, and over here, there you can sit there with a small little fire and you can stoke its coals and stoke its coals and stoke its coals. And meanwhile, this person over here is cooking on it. 
This person over here is living off the heat. And they're warming themselves up. And all it is, there's no flame. There's these coals that are white hot. You know what even better than that is, you know what? You can leave those coals for, for days and you can come back and it will look dead. You know what you do? All of a sudden, they're white, red hot again. Why? Because inside those coals is, is, is heat. And they've been stoked and they've been nurtured. And in our lives, it's very easy for us to get enamored with the flames. And there be no coals supporting the flames. That's all I'm saying. The reality is when you cultivate the coals, you know what? The cooking and the heating and and the, the boiling of the water and all those activities, you know where they're produced? Because there's a relationship there. There's heat there. That's the way it ought to be in our lives. All the activity comes from the intimacy. And when our activity, you see it there on your handout, becomes the source of our worth and value, serving God ceases to be a joy and instead it becomes a chore. And even in my life, listen, statistics say 1,500 pastors walk away from the ministry every single month. 1,500. For various reasons. Some of them, it's because the activity wasn't fueled by a relationship. The activity had become supreme. Some of it's because of the sheep. There's a very real phenomenon. There's a movie out about it, clergy, called Clergy Killer. Sheep, Christians running off, good pastors. Because there's not a relationship, it's activity. And self has taken preeminence to sustenance. Christ has to be preeminent, unrivaled before a watching world. Christ. The ultimate danger, listen, and I close, the ultimate danger in these false postures before a watching world is that they'll move people away from the true hope that's held out to them in the gospel. And they'll settle for substitutes. That's why our lives matter. There to be clear pictures of the gospel. Clear pictures of the preeminence of Christ. Not life from God. Not life for God. Not as we'll see next week, life over God and life under God. But ultimately where we're headed and what we'll see in Colossians, it's life with God. With God. 